Welcome to the latest episode of Round Rants, and I'm joined today by Adam Alter. Adam is the New York Times bestselling author of two books, Irresistible, which considers why so many people today are addicted to so many behaviors from insistent smartphone usage to video games playing and online shopping and Drunk Tank Pink, which investigates how hidden forces in the world around us shape our thoughts, feelings and behaviors. Adam, thanks a lot for coming on for a chat and I hope all is well with you today. All good here. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Richie. No bother at all. To get straight to us, your line of work, to me anyway, it's it's quite interesting. You're a lex- lecturer uh, during the summer months, and you've also written two books, as I've just mentioned there. Like, what, what got you into social psychology and what basically interested you and made you want to study it and try and teach it in the first place? I was pretty restless as a student when I was uh, an undergrad. This was a long time ago. This was about over 20 years ago. I was trying to work out what uh, what to study, and the first degree I started was actuarial science, so very hardcore financial math. And um, I, I it took me about th- two two months to realize that it wasn't what I wanted to do. And so a friend and I decided that we would sit in on as many different lectures across the university as we could. So we sat in on philosophy classes and sociology classes, anthropology, engineering even medicine, even law, we, we sat in on every class we could find. And there was a social psychology class and it was being taught by a guy who ended up being my, my undergraduate honours advisor. And I was, I was totally gripped by it. I thought it was fascinating. And I thought that uh, the things he was talking about were, first of all, widely applicable, were really just intrinsically very interesting. And uh, I, I couldn't think of a better thing to do than to choose to study something that was just hugely interesting to me and, and interesting to pretty much everyone I told I, mm. I told about what I was I was learning. And so I ended up switching over. I spent a year doing actuarial science, even less, six months doing that degree, and then moved to psychology, picked up a, a, a law degree on the side as well, um, and ended up doing a PhD in social psych, and here I am. Mm. Pretty extensive background with regards to your education. And how did – you've just explained how you – became interested in the subject and why you wanted to pursue us from an academic point of view and what led you down the route of becoming a lecturer in the topic and then going on to write two books about it. Yeah, so I started studying social psych and I ended up doing an honours thesis and just as I was wrapping up, the, the person who was advising me was an American professor who'd moved to Australia with his family and he said to me, you know, you should, you should do a PhD, it could be fun. And I hadn't really thought much about it. Um, but I, I'd enjoyed the process of researching and, you know, so I said to him, I'll tell you what, I will apply. I don't think anything's going to happen. I don't think I'll get into any of the schools I'm interested in, but let's, let's just throw the hat in the ring, see what happens. And so, uh, he, he said to me, you know, the bad news is you're a little bit late to apply. You've missed the boat because the Australian academic calendar was on a totally different timeline. And, um, there were only a couple of schools that accepted the application and one of them ended up saying, yeah, sure, why don't you come? And so I, I, I agreed to do it. So three or four months later, on the back of that that split-second decision, um, I found that I'd been admitted to, to do a PhD in psychology in the US. And so I, I arrived here in the middle of 2004 and spent five years doing my PhD and I really enjoyed it and ended up staying on. So that's now I've, I've been a professor at NYU now for about 10 years, and part of that is teaching, and part of it is, is uh, speaking and, and writing books and consulting, and I love it because there's a huge amount of variety built into the job. And following on just from the tail end of the last question there, 
with regards to the two books, as you said, you, you spent years getting the PhD done. Was it your idea initially to, you know, test yourself and become an author and write extensively uh, in the two topics you chose to write about? Or did somebody, someone else give you the nudge that was probably needed to encourage you and convince you that writing these books would be a good idea? It was a total accident on my part. What happened was about three or four months after I'd started working as a, as a young professor, I got a call from a journalist who said, I've read some of your work and I'd like to write a piece in the Boston Globe. It's a, there's a section called the ideas section. And I'd like to write a piece that summarizes some of your work. And so I said, yeah, that sounds great. I hadn't done many interviews like that. And so he, he met me for coffee. We chatted for a couple of hours. It was a long conversation and he wrote a fantastic piece. And um, a couple of people read that piece and they happened to be agents, book agents, literary agents. And they called me up and in, the, in one week I got calls from maybe four or five agents saying, that was a really interesting piece in the Globe. Are you interested in writing a book on the topic or related? And I, you know, for the first couple, I said not at all. But after I got four or five calls, I started to think, well, there's obviously something in this. It's igniting interest in the right kinds of people who recognize the difference between an idea that has legs and one that doesn't. And so I ended up saying, yeah, I think I'll, I'll try. It was, a, it was a little bit like this process of narrowing down what degree to do and ending up in the US. I just, I said, I'm going to write the book proposal. And if I manage to write it, that's great. If I send it to publishers and one of them wants to publish the book, that's great. But if at any stage I hit a brick wall, I'm just going to stop and go back to doing what I was doing before. And I was lucky that uh, one of the publishers picked up the proposal, was interested, and I found myself, you know, six months later uh, with an 18-month contract to write the book. And so that was the first book. And I, I enjoyed that first taste of uh, being a writer and traveling around and speaking about my ideas and uh, ended up writing another one. And I'm now starting to think about the third. So it's a, it's a, an aspect of this career that not everyone enjoys, but I, I really like writing and I like traveling and, and speaking about ideas in a broader forum than just in, within the academic community. Mm. The first the first book you uh, published was Drunk Tank Pink, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's a mouthful and, of the title. And that hope that basically as a I slightly brought it up in the introduction, but that basically talked about the environment we live in and how we tend to make decisions without fully realizing what has encouraged us to make them. And I've extensively, like I've read Irresistible. I haven't got a chance to read Drunk Tank Pink yet, but just for anyone interested in that work, what was the kind of overall, the overall idea and the topics that you wanted to cover the most in that uh, particular book? I mean, this goes right back to that first lecture, that first social psychology lecture I sat in on. I w was just fascinated by how how convinced humans are of, of the fact that what they were doing was driven by some conscious will, that we were you know, buying the things we wanted to buy, walking in the direction we wanted to walk, thinking the things we wanted to think, and that it was all sort of self-willed. And um, that just isn't true. There's just a huge amount that buffets us from um, one idea to another, and a lot of it is out of our control. Things like weather conditions, the color that a room is painted, um, the last word you read, there's just a huge amount going on psychologically below the surface of conscious awareness. And what I wanted to do is to bring all of those ideas that were naturally and generally hidden from people to the fore. And so the book was an attempt to kind of catalog a whole lot of the different things that influence us as we make our our way through life. 
and each chapter was dedicated to one of those cues. I ended up making a, the, the book nine chapters, focusing on very, very small cues like the names we give our kids or businesses, the words we use to describe th- something and how that changes how we see that thing, all the way to very big ones like uh, like weather conditions, the temperature in a room, things like that, these sort of physical conditions that are much larger and broader than, say, the words we're using. Um, and, and the book was really just that. It was an attempt to say to people, uh, you probably have a sense that what you're doing is self-willed, but it turns out there are a lot of other outside influences, and I want to show you what some of them are. Because once you understand what they are, you're in a much better position to counteract them if they're not helping you and, and to harness them if they are. And that, that was, uh, that was a, the sort of idea behind a lot of the, the research I was doing at the time, and then that became the central theme of that first book, Drunk Tank Pink. And you said there that how someone describes a person or a thing immediately shapes their mind or opinion on that, how they view it negatively or positively or whichever emotion you want to attach to it. Like, is there one or two examples you could give with regards to how someone views a certain thing through what they're being told or with their eyes, their stuff about different colors, give different emotions to people? Is there one or two examples that you could pinpoint um, and refer to? Yeah, uh, you know, just looking at language for a minute, there's some very famous research looking at eyewitnesses to crimes and things like that. Uh, if you if you show people a, a car accident, so they two, see two cars colliding, and you ask one group of people how fast were the cars going when they collided, and you ask the other group how fast were the cars going when they crashed, you ask another group how fast were the cars going when they smashed, each of those words describes a slightly different thing, but you're looking at exactly the same image. So if you're estimating the speed of the cars, that should be driven by what you're seeing. But the, the, the words that you use have a dramatic effect on how fast people believe the cars are going. So that's one example. You know, like if you're a lawyer and you are representing someone who would like to claim that the cars were going fast, if you say how fast were the cars going when they smashed, any eyewitness will overestimate the speed of those cars. So that's one example. There are some other really fascinating examples with respect to language that in, in some languages, the word for, say, a bridge, a bridge across uh, the span of a, a body of water is a masculine word, and in some languages, it's a feminine word. So the German word for bridge is feminine. The Spanish word for bridge is masculine. And when you ask people who na- are native speakers of those two languages to describe bridges, they tend to use words that are consistent with the gender that has been assigned to those to those to uh, that concept in those different languages. So if you ask German people to describe bridges, they tend to say things like elegant. Um, you know, they use words that are typically associated more with femininity than masculinity. Um, and if you ask people who speak Spanish about a bridge, they'll say firm, robust, strong, things that, are, that tend to be associated with masculinity, traditional masculinity. Um, and so, you know, even things as, as small as the words we use and the, the gender of those words has a huge effect on how we perceive the, the very same objects in the world. It just shows you how how malleable we are, how we can be shaped to see the same things quite differently depending on on uh, these these sort of very small cues that have a, an outsized effect. Mm, and I suppose now you think of the words you're saying, especially with the car crash example, and I know that I actually said crash <laughs> or smashing <laughs> into people and stuff like that. That is like I was just thinking there as you were saying that if someone was to tell me two cars colliding or two cars smashing into each other, it immediately just affects my mind and how I'm actually even imagining the scenario rather than even what I'm actually seeing with my own eyes. So it is it is most definitely an interesting point that something so little that 
you should think about you don't it just goes over your head yeah it's immediately is impacting what i'm thinking or feeling about the situation right um, yeah absolutely i i uh, it's a it's a powerful idea i mean it even affects things like your memory of whether there was shattered glass at the scene of an accident you know if you say did the cars crash and did you happen to notice glass people say oh yeah yeah no there was glass if you say did the cars collide people say no i didn't notice any glass so it changes even fundamental physical properties of what you what you're looking at which is i think quite interesting it is certainly and moving on to your your second book and what we'll probably discuss about now in a bit more detail irresistible and this was to do with the psychology of people but it was the main focus was why people can't stop checking their phones scrolling clicking or watching netflix or tv shows etc and you covered it extensively and i've read the book now twice and it's it's one of my go-to references in pretty much any aspect of my life with regards to criticizing my mates or actually criticizing myself <laughs> but with regards to that I know you talked about how you initially got into writing and how was you were ready to step away if you hit any kind of resistance or barriers. But focusing on the irresistible book, was there was that an individual passion and an individual interest of you saying why the hell? Why is everyone so attached to their phones? Or why is everyone just watching TV the whole time and all this? Or yet again, was it an outside opinion or an outside person that? told you you know what you should write about this this is pretty interesting no i mean this was this was something that i was interested in and in fact early on when i was first interested in it i spoke to a few people about it and they said things like ah i don't know that that's really an issue i don't know that people really worry that much about how much time they're spending on screens and Mm. a couple of years later once the book was written uh, i was lucky that things had changed and obviously that's a fairly big deal now a lot of people talk about it they worry about how it's affecting kids and how it's affecting you know their own adult relationships and so it's it's um it's become a topic that's be that's that's attracted a lot of attention but in the beginning that wasn't the case so it was something that i was interested in i think what happens really um, for someone like me what you try to do is you try to come up with an idea that you haven't read a lot about but that as soon as you as soon as you describe it to someone else or to a set of other people, they all say, oh, yeah, that makes total sense. That's really interesting. If there were a book on that, I'd read it. That's what I want to hear yeah. about. And that's that's really how this, uh, this that book came about, that I'd been sitting on an airplane playing a game and um, I just found that I could not stop. You know, I'd been trying to rest. I'd been trying to eat some food, do a bit of work. And I spent this whole plane ride between New York and LA, a good six hours, just playing this game over and over and over again. And um, when I landed, I, I just I wanted to get a better sense of whether this was something specific about this one game. You know, maybe the people who built it were absolute geniuses, and no one else in the world could possibly have gripped me in that way. Um, or whether maybe there was something more pervasive going on that there was a there's a lot that was going on on our screens that had gripped not just me but lots of other people. So I started to ask a few people about how they felt about their phones, and you got this really interesting sort of ambivalent reaction where people said things like, you know, I I love my phone; it's critical to my well being. I feel I feel like it's almost a, an adult pacifier is a term that a lot of people use. You know, like you, you feel discomfort. If you have your phone with you, at least you have that. It gives you gives you some sort of security blanket. At the same time, we know that we spend more time on our phones than we'd like most of us, and it drags mm-hmm. us away from work and, and loved ones and our families and from exercising and all sorts of other things that are very important, and it robs us of the time that we might be spending on those other things. So, uh 
very quickly, I got the sense this was something people wanted to understand better. And so I, I started to write about the topic. And one of the things I noticed about phones was that people were behaving in some respects like addicts. You know, there was, there was no drug, there was no substance they were ingesting. But these experiences on our phones were so well designed that they acted on our brains almost as drugs might have acted. And I, I found that fascinating and I wanted to get to the bottom of it. And that's where the book came from. Well, no, that's it's an interesting insight as to why you pursued it and why you wrote about it. And to talk about some of the topics, like there's a vast array. It's, there's, as you said, there's many different topics, there's many different details you go into with regards to the rewards people may get from using it, the negatives. And we can't cover everything, but some of the things I would like to focus on, and you were saying it there that people feel that it's nearly an extension of oneself, the phone. And I remember once I read the once I read the book myself for the first time, I downloaded the app Moment, which for those of you listening, it basically tracks your phone usage, how long you do it, what you're spending it on, etc. And I noticed, I was thinking, right, I'll probably be on my phone maybe 80 minutes a day, 90 minutes a day. And I found it being over three hours, sometimes four hours. And I was like, Jesus Christ, nearly 40, 50% of my day is staring at a screen. So I was adamant that by the time I was ready to quit and delete the app moment, I needed to be able to consistently show myself that I could get down to an hour and a half, two hours and no more. And once I regularly did that, I was like, you know what, then I don't need to keep an eye on myself. And every now and then I do go back and download it and check that I'm still on track and which I am. But then the flip side of that is I see some of my friends and He'll probably listen to this or since his attention span's quite poor, he'll probably have turned off by now. But <laughs> basically, he's on his phone 10, 11, 12 hours a day. And you talk about it and you've spoken TED Talks, you've spoken interviews about you're looking for maybe solutions to the problem. Not You also want to highlight why these are happening, why we want to be on our phones and why we, as you rightfully said, we get a bit cold turkey, we get anxious when we don't have our phone. But like, what are some of the subtle ways in which social media platforms and just phone usage in general keep us just glued into the screen and not want to put it down? And when we do put it down, the first thing that comes into our head is, shit, where's my phone? Yeah, there are, there are lots of different things they do. I'll, the, the two that I think are most prominent, the first one is uh, they have systematically removed the cues that suggest to us that it might be time to move on to the next thing. So if you think mm-hmm. about how you, we consumed media in the 20th century and even in the early 21st century. You'd, you'd read a magazine or a newspaper or you'd watch a TV show. It was a natural breaking point where you'd say, okay, I'm done here. I've got to move on. Either you got to the end of the article or the chapter or the, the whole newspaper or the whole book. If you're watching a TV show, you had one-hour episodes that were spread out from week to week. As one episode ended, you had to wait till the next one arrived. And so you wouldn't sit at the TV sitting idle for a week. You'd do something else in, in between. Well, the yeah. way we consume media now is very different, that everything is bottomless and that's by design. When you go on any social media platform, the content is bottomless. You could basically spend all day, every day scanning the content, scrolling. There is no point where you have to push buttons. You can just scroll either with your finger on a phone or your thumb or on a screen, on a, a PC screen or a laptop. You could just sort of scroll down and, and you just you'd keep going forever. You'd never have to push a button. And so this this whole, uh, it, it seems like just an accidental feature that's emerged over time, but it's very conscious on the part of the people who create this content because they know that every time you hit a small barrier or a roadblock or any sort of friction, that's the moment when you're likely to say, okay, I think it's probably time for me to move on to the next thing, whatever that next thing is. And so given how much competition there is for our attention now, the only way you can win in that attention marketplace is by ensuring that people, once they're on your platform, 
have no reason to leave. It's a little bit like a slot machine, you know, in, placed in a casino where you, you will never see a clock in a casino. You'll never be able to see the passage of time looking at daylight because they're all dark. You, you just don't know what time it is. Because if you notice that, it, you know, the sun was starting to rise, it might suggest to you, hey, it's time to get, get a move on. So that's the mm. first thing is the systematic removal of these stopping cues, these cues that tell you to move on. The second big thing is humans are just by nature completionists. We like to finish the things that we start. And um, that basically means if you have a goal that's set up, either you've set it up yourself or someone else has given it to you, we, we feel a little uneasy until we finish that goal, completed the goal. Uh, that's why a lot of companies will have you know frequent flyer programs where you have these different levels of loyalty. And once you reach a certain level, they'll give you a special rise in status or some sort of reward. And they'll, they'll keep showing you how much more distance, how much distance there is between where you are and where you want to be ultimately. And this is, this is a, an attempt to sort of keep the loop open. And as you complete the loop, as you get to say gold status, when you're flying, suddenly they start telling you about platinum status and then the next one and the next one on beyond that. Um, this is something that's a huge part of say, even email, uh, the fact that your emails just you know pop up every day you wake up you'll have a new set of emails um, they come throughout the day non-stop um, and so you always have this open loop of trying to to read or get through all your emails the same is true of social media because it's bottomless you always have something to do there's always a goal there's always something to achieve if you send out uh, posts of your own the goal there then becomes getting a certain number of likes or hits or retweets or what it depends what platform you're on um and and all of this sort of makes us pretty obsessive we become very metric focused and it leads us to return to these platforms over and over again searching for that holy grail post that that ends up leading us to uh you know thousands of likes thousands of shares and and a big rise in in viewership and interest Mm. it's fascinating and for those not familiar with the topics we're talking about like the the average attention span and correct me if it's been updated but it's about seven to eight seconds if that's correct. Um, or has it gone down? I'm yeah. afraid you're about to say, no, it's now two seconds. Yeah. It's, such, it's such a short amount of time that, as you said, any bit of resistance or loading or effort, basically, that immediately gives you that potential to think, oh, what am I doing? Should I do this? Should I make my dinner? Should I go to bed? Even I found myself last night, guilty as always. I'm not going to say I'm perfect and I'm... I'm I'm not uh, getting dragged into this uh, basically manipulation of programs like on Netflix. I did binge watch because of that stupid five second countdown <laughs> after a program, and I ended up watching probably two episodes that I shouldn't have. But those are the cues that, as you said, in the old days, you'd maybe have to change your disc. You might have to wait a week. Well, now whether it's in social media or on Netflix or on the internet, we don't really have those stopping cues anymore. And as you rightfully pointed out, that's making us not think about what we should be doing or what we should do next. So to slightly bring it, to progress it on a bit, like by using this, and you can read countless articles on it, that if you focus on, say, social media, for instance, say Instagram, that's basically the main offender for users reporting anxiety or depression or quite serious mental health um, effects of using this. Well, obviously there is positives to us. There's positives of using YouTube for self-expression and other things. But like what, if you were to try to get a point across as to why some people should think about their phone usage or their usage on these social media platforms, like what would you try and say to them to convince them to try monitor their usage or maybe think twice about spending half their day staring at a screen 
Well, it's an individual decision, obviously. So, you know, I, I don't like to prescribe, uh, not, you know, a course of action for individuals. But I, when, when I ask a room, say there are 100 people in the room, and I say to them, tell me from one to 10, how big an issue is this for you? Where one means that it's not an issue at all. You're totally fine with your usage of screens. And this is, this is not something that concerns you in the least. You've got more important thing to, things to worry about. And 10 is, this is a major, major issue for me. It's hampering my well-being, and I need to make major changes now. The, the most common response is somewhere around a seven. So this is not sort of debilitating in the way that a major drug addiction or alcohol abuse might be, but it's, it's still a major factor in people's lives, and they recognize that they'd like to make a change. That, again, varies. Some people are at a one, some are at a 10, but most are around a six or a seven or even an eight. Um, so I don't usually have to do much convincing, but the way to think about it is uh, there are four main kinds of consequences that come from using screens. Um, they are social, so social effects affecting your relationships with your friends, with your loved ones, the ability to, to form you know, proper relationships, and especially for kids, I think, the ability of a, a child to, to learn how to have an extended interaction face-to-face -face with someone yeah. else. That's, that's critical. And, and if you're not, uh, if you don't, get access to that. If you're not going to have a chance to, to hone those skills, you're not going to develop those social skills. And even people who have learned those skills over time, you know, as an adult, if I spend too much time in front of a screen, I sort of forget, in a sense, how to interact with people. I feel like I, it, it's a struggle. Um, so there's the social consequences. There are financial consequences. For a lot of people, this is costly. And it can be costly either because, say, there are in-app purchases. You're playing a game. It keeps asking you for money. Some people spend more than they'd like. It's just too easy to shop online, so we end up overspending. Uh, again, that's another example of removing these friction points so that you just spend money freely, whereas if you actually were holding the dollar bills or the, the euros or the pounds or whatever you were holding, you wouldn't actually spend that freely. But because it's, it's, it's like play-play money, you're just hit, hitting buttons on a screen, it's very easy to spend. Uh, so that's a big factor for a lot of people. It also stops you from being able to work for, for many people. They're not working as well as they'd like to. Uh, and so that's also, it's got its own financial cost there. Um, there are also psychological consequences. So uh, you mentioned this, uh, this idea that our, our general ability to focus has declined, that we're more easily bored. Uh, you look at people getting into an elevator. We used to just stand in elevators and think. Now we get into an elevator, even for three seconds, everyone pulls out the phone. It's a, it's a natural mm. crutch. Uh, and then the last set of consequences are physiological or physical consequences. The fact that we spend way more time sitting down, that's bad for our posture, it's bad for our heart health, cardiovascular health. We don't exercise nearly as much as we should because we spend so much time on screens. Uh, even when we are exercising, we walk into poles because we're looking at screens rather than looking at where we're walking. Uh, we stumble into the road, people drive badly because they are so fixated on their phones. You know, there's just a huge raft of consequences that come from overusing our phones. And, uh, you know, different people have different issues with them. But I think for most of us, we can recognize usually it's social consequences or the fact that we're just so easily bored because we get these bite-sized bits of entertainment all the time. Um, mm. I think most people recognize that there's a need to do at least something. Uh, and so I usually don't have to try that hard to say, you know, maybe make a couple of changes. Yeah. And uh, one of the talent points in the book is one of the – I think it could be the first page or the second page or definitely at the very start, you mentioned how Steve, Steve Jobs, when he invented the iPad and that started being sold around the world, he was he came out and in interviews, he stated that he didn't actually allow his children to use it because he obviously was aware of some of the hidden 
side effects or the damages it might cause to them. So he, he was very much on top of limiting them to screen time and making sure he could basically, as the leader of Apple, control the effects it had on his own family. So I thought that was quite telling with regards to such a popular product being held back by its creator on the ones he actually cared about. And like you, you were saying there, like several minutes ago, you were talking about by writing it, you, you will, not many people knew a huge amount about it. There wasn't a huge amount of awareness for it. Some people didn't even think there was a problem with it. And as you said, especially now recently in the last five to 10 years, it's becoming more and more important to people with the mental health as you said social media plays such a big role in everyone's lives the internet like what were some of the standout things that you learned along the way with say regards to awareness so i know you visited say restart which was that addiction center which they started for people who felt they were addicted to game and our internet so i suppose try just word that correctly like what were some of the standout ideas or standout institutions that you discovered while working uh, on the book that basically were trying to help raise awareness to those who felt that they were addicted or needed help? Yeah, it's a great question. Actually, things have changed a lot, even in the last couple of years. So I was writing the book between 2014 and 2016. So a good three years ago, three, four, five years ago now, and there just wasn't much infrastructure around. Um, there was this center called Restart, but they only had a small number of, of inpatients. These were mostly young men uh, who were, you know, in early teen to adolescence, maybe between the ages of something like f- 15 and, you know, their early 20s. And these were guys who were uh, struggling usually with video game addictions, but other forms of internet addiction as well. And their parents were wealthy enough to be able to send them to this very, very expensive program that lasted about six weeks inpatient and then involved outpatient following as well. Obviously, this sort of thing was in its infancy. It wasn't covered by any medical insurance. And so you had to have out of pocket thousands and thousands of spare dollars to, to make this work. Having said that, um, for people who could afford it, Restart was fantastic and is fantastic. It's I've spoken to a lot of the people who went through this program. It's basically, uh, it's, it's situated in, in a very green wooded area just outside of Seattle in Washington State in the US. Uh, it's a beautiful part of the country. Um, and the camp as it is, it's a sort of camp where these, these young men all learn how to cook and clean and have con- real conversations. They do not use gadgetry and devices. There, there are barely any phones there at all. Um, and they basically spend a six-week period detoxing from screens and from the internet. And it, they learn coping skills. They, they learn to understand what exactly it is about those screens in the first place that, that attracted them to the screens. And um, it, it, for a lot of them, makes them, you know, capable of living in the in the, a world that is filled with screens and technology and uh, allows them to function going forward. The, the trickiest thing, of course, is that if you think about something like alcohol abuse or drug addiction, you can yeah. live in mainstream society and, uh, and escape those things. You know, you could spend a very comfortable few months away from the places and people you spent time with if you had a drug abuse or alcohol abuse problem, and that's, that's totally fine. You aren't going to be exposed to drugs if you avoid them. Uh, you don't have to go into a bar if you're an alcoholic. The same is just not true about screens and about the internet. If you have a problem with overusing screens, it's very hard to get a job. It's very hard to hold down a job, to 
to maintain friendships, to uh, date and have relationships, to travel. All these things require email addresses and access to screens and websites and so on. So, you know, you cannot go cold turkey on tech. It's very, very hard to do. I've, I've, I really haven't met anyone who's been able to do it. Uh, and so mm. you need a, a, a group like Restart to train you in not just how to say no, but how to manage your use, how to turn it into sustainable use in the same way that, you know, environmentalists talk about sustainable use of the environment and its resources. You can't just say we're not going to use oxygen, we're not going to use water and so on. We are. We just have to work out how to do that in the way that's that's best, that, that uh, leaves enough for other people and for the rest of the planet. And the same is true of the way we use screens. That We're going to obviously need to use them, but we need to use them in a way that doesn't hamper our relationships, our social well-being, our financial well-being, and so on. And so that's why I think Restart um, is doing doing a great job. And there are more and more centers like it popping up in the US and in other parts of the world as well. Mm. Yeah, and it is it is noble work, and it's about actually giving the awareness in the first place, and really trying to promote it for it to be treated seriously. Because without that initial attempt, like it's just not going to be seen as a problem. When, as we've discussed, there could be some deep deep problems with it, or overusing the services that have been provided us. In this case, it is the internet, it is gaming, it is social media, etc. And to take it on to a the views of people in work and the business side of things in some of the talks you've done, you've talked about companies when it's five o'clock or six o'clock, they have mechanisms to turn off all the electronics. They have mechanisms to raise the seats and the desks up. So people are encouraged to leave work and go enjoy their time with their family or away from work. And if you could just talk about some of the things while you were learning about the book and even say beyond that in which you've seen businesses start to become a bit more i don't want to say tech savvy because that sounds ridiculous but a bit more aware that sometimes overworking these guys are giving them more time to spend in the chair is not exactly good for them when they need to go out spend time with their co-workers spend time at home spend time with their families yeah it's obviously a tussle for businesses right it's tricky because you know the the thing you want if you're a business owner is for the people who are working for you to be as efficient as possible and to spend as much time working as possible, you know, within reason. You you don't want to put them in a position where they burn out really fast, obviously, but you want to make sure that they're doing good work and that it's consistent. And that is inconsistent with the idea of disconnecting because when you're disconnected, especially in industries where things go on all the time where you, you know, in financial industries, other industries where the whole world is involved, you know, it's always daytime somewhere. And so there's benefit in having people connected all the time. There are companies though that are starting to recognize that the best thing they can do in the long run is to allow their workers to disconnect. There are some some great examples of this. There's a Dutch design firm where uh, the desks are actually tethered to the ceiling. And at six o'clock every day, it doesn't matter what you're doing, who you're talking to, whether you're on the phone, whether you're on the screen, it doesn't matter what you're doing. The desk automatically rises to the ceiling on these cables. So so you just hear a whirring sound and the desk just rises slowly to the the roof. So, you you know, you are absolutely prevented from working after 6 p.m. And actually, most days of the week, the studio, the design studio turns into a yoga studio, which is, you know, it's a terrific way to say to people, you know what, it's there's work time, there's non-work time, this is not work time now. Mm. Um, There are some other great examples. The the car company Daimler, uh, the German car company, has a great email vacation policy. 
if you uh, if you're a worker at Daimler and you're on vacation, what happens is when people email you, they don't just get the traditional response, which is this person's on vacation. They'll go back to you as soon as they can, and they'll be back on this day. The vacation response actually says. Thanks for your email. Our policy at Daimler is that we will delete all emails that come into people who are on vacation. This person is on vacation. They will never see your email. What you can do instead is you can hit the forward button and you can send the same email to this other person who will take care of you in the meantime, or you can resend your email after the following date when this original person will be back at work. Now, what that means, and it's kind of miraculous for a worker, is that the way your inbox looks when you leave for a vacation is exactly the way it looks when you return. So it makes no sense to incessantly check your emails while you're away, which a lot of people do. They don't truly disconnect because you're not going to get any emails. They're all going to be deleted before they reach you. It's a great way of enforcing vacation time. Uh, And so a lot of companies are starting to do that. And uh, a lot are also doing a daily version of that. It's called Zmail or, you know, ZZZ mail um, or Zmail. And the basic idea with that is um, that, Mail is only delivered to your inbox at these workplaces that use Gmail between certain hours. It's usually between 9 a.m. and 6 p.m., which means that when you wake up in the morning, you roll over to check your phone, you're not going to have any emails. And once you leave at the end of the day, you're not going to have any emails. So again, on a daily basis, you get to disconnect for many hours of the day. And uh, you know these are all just ways of recognizing that humans need a break. And without a break, they are much less effective as workers and, and as human beings. I suppose just for because a lot of the listeners will be some will be young, some will be looking, some will be listening to this on a phone probably, and then after or maybe midway through or after five seconds they switch over to social media, or whatever. And I'm giving digs, but I, I give and take. <laughs> but basically, is there any any kind of? I know I mentioned moment, but that doesn't really give you a solution to the problem. That kind of just raises awareness. There is one or two little tools within the app that do help. But like, is there any apps that you've come across or is there any other companies? I know we talked about restarts, but that's more so of a a center as opposed to a company that give you services in order to make the most of your spare time and not have it consumed by emails or phone usage or internet usage. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of apps that do things like gating where they prevent you from using certain apps once you've used them for a certain amount each day or when you've gone over a certain limit for the week or things like that. There are, there are hundreds of them. You can just search for them. Um, I don't even endorse one in particular. Um, the new version mm. of Apple's iOS suite has, has an automatic tracker that gives you feedback. So that does a, a bit of what Moment does. It's not as fine-grained and not as adjustable, but it gives you a lot of the same sort of feedback. But you're right. Just getting feedback is only step one. The next step is making changes. I don't necessarily think making changes with apps is the best way to go. It's really about reorienting your life and changing things on a, on a bigger scale. Um, making behavioral changes is key. So I think uh, one of the best things you can do is just to sort of set boundaries and say, just as these companies I just mentioned are doing, there is time that will be screen time and there's time that will be non-screen time. And um, that that time is sacred in a sense. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to say, you know, it could be something like every single day, uh, maybe it's dinner time. You know, you may eat dinner at different times of the day with different people in different contexts, but everyone eats dinner pretty much. And uh, if you're one of those people, you could say, no matter where I am or what I'm doing for dinner, I will not have a phone with me. And the people I'm with will know that that's how I eat and they will do the same. And so that'll be time... For various things, if you're with other people, it'll be time to connect with them socially. 
If you're alone, it'll be time to read or it'll just be time to sit and think and just do nothing. It's incredible how rare that is now to just sit and be idle is really, really good for you. It's restorative. It's good for all sorts of different different uh, uh, you know, components of what it is to be human. Um, and so I think uh, just making these changes and then having them repeated enough that they become habits is absolutely key. And that's really, for me, the easiest first step. And then beyond that, you can do things like saying, you know, I have, I have two little kids. Uh, my son is two and my daughter is one. Um, I don't want to miss the opportunity to, you know, film them if they're doing something on the weekends or to to take pictures of them if they're they're doing something that's, you know, a bit of a milestone. There are constant milestones at that age. Yeah. And so I take my phone and I put it on airplane mode. And that basically means that the phone is a dumb phone that functions as a camera. And so on the weekends, maybe between, say, nine and five, when they're awake and active and doing all sorts of things. I have my phone with me, but I don't get emails. I don't get calls. I I don't need to constantly check my phone because it's on airplane mode. It's not going to give me anything. Uh, And so these kinds of small tweaks can have a huge effect on our well-being. And I've found following lots of people who do this and checking in with them that almost everyone says, you know, this improved my life. Less time on the screen was good for me in, in many different respects. Yeah. I'm I'm envious of that willpower, but I can't say I'm not going to try something like that. And I did a little thing. And the funny thing is, whenever, say, I'd have friends over to the house, you'd have very limited conversation because everyone's staring at their phones the whole time, whether we're watching a film, whether we're watching sports, whether we're not watching anything, people are just staring at their screen. So I brought in a rule where I was like, if I have two or more people over, there's no phones allowed in the sitting room. And lo and behold no one's come over because they're aware <laughs> of that rule. So it, it has the, the door swings both it ways, does, I guess. And it that. does. <laughs> but it is interesting how you said, like people making individual decisions. And I think the crucial thing you said there was habits, making it actually a habit to keep on doing it, not just try do it for one or two days or a week and then just assess from there, actually repetitively doing it. And then ultimately getting the positive rewards, which you mentioned, an improvement on life, spending time with family and friends, ultimately is much more rewarding than the little things we get from screens. I did find that very interesting. And I suppose that more or less comprehensively covers what we can anyway within the book, Irresistible. And obviously for all the listeners, I've told even my close friends, I've encouraged them to read it. Some have uh, ordered it, some don't have the attention spans just yet, but maybe one day. But you just at the start of the show, you mentioned that you you have plans or you have an idea for potentially doing a third book. And if you could really briefly um, or if you're able to just disclose some information about what you potentially could be working on with the, the latest book. Yeah, I'm, I'm starting to think, you know, the first book was about these little things that influence us that change our lives in certain ways. And the, the second book was about the biggest thing I could imagine that was changing our lives, this, the force of these screens. Yeah. And I've long been very interested in the concept of change much more broadly. Um, so we just, I think, as a species, are just really bad about understanding change, coping with it, harnessing it, uh, recognizing when it's going to happen. We're very reactive. We wait for things to happen, and then we say, hey, I need to fix that or I need to deal with that. Even look at policymaking among governments. They all wait for some catastrophe to happen, and then they say, we've got to introduce a bill to deal with this thing. Now, if this thing is important, you should have noticed it before. And if it's not important, then even though this big event just happened, we shouldn't be focusing on it now. 
Uh, and so I, I think uh, I'm trying to write a book right now that sort of grapples with this idea of change, our ability to, to, to make sense of it um, and to, to, to harness it, to be better about predicting the way things are going to evolve over time and, and uh, leading better lives as a result of it. Sounds uh, interesting, and I'll definitely keep my eye on that. Well, that more or less concludes the formal part of the podcast, Adam, and for the next minute or two, if you don't mind, I normally finish with a quick fire round. So if you want, I can ask you a few quick fire questions and we can basically, whatever comes straight to your head, you just shoot it out. <laughs> Sounds good. Question one is, what is the strangest thing you've seen as a lecturer? The strangest thing I've seen as a lecturer? Um Oh, I once gave a talk to a room. Uh, this was a, a talk to a very small room. It was just three people uh, from a very prestigious university in the United States. And uh, it was the end of the day, and they told me at the beginning of the talk that uh, to celebrate the fact that I was I, I was speaking to them at the end of the day, they were each going to have a drink. And as, as the talk mm. wore on, they became uh, a little bit drunk, and there was a point in the talk where all three of them were asleep. That's only the only <laughs> time I've ever given a talk to a room that was completely asleep. And I, I just kept going. I barreled on through. That's the only time that's ever happened before. Um, well, I'd like to think it was the alcohol and not the, the, you know, the, the content, the content yeah. of the speech. <laughs> but but that, was, that was a very, very strange and unusual experience. I, I think I could have just stopped and sat there and, you know, they wouldn't have been any the wiser. Yeah, and then just once they wake up, bluff on as if you've just been continuing yeah, talking. That's right. But uh, fairly noble of you to continue on to essentially <laughs> talking to yourself. But... Right. Next one is your favorite film of all time. Oh man, these are these are not not tough questions, but tough answers. I'm yeah. trying to think what my favorite film is. Um, uh, I've got very simple tastes. Um, I, I like Shawshank Redemption, um, but it's it's a uh, such a common answer. I always feel a little boring given that giving that response. But uh, I watched it at a time when I was I was about I think 14 or 15. And uh, it had such a huge impact on me. I think it shaped a lot of my decision-making to come. Um, and uh, it was the first time I saw anything that made me actually think, I, uh, I, I kind of want to get the most out of life. I realized that there was a sort of finite, uh, that life was finite, and that I wanted to, to make decisions that gave me the, you know, the best I could get. Um, and that, that's why the, that movie had such a big effect on me. Mm. Well, no, it's always good to get the backstory, and that gives uh, the answer a bit more weight rather than just saying, oh, Shawshank Redemption, typical blah, blah, blah. Right. Um, what is the worst advice you see or hear being given in your world? I, I think there's a lot of advice that suggests um, that you can hack things or that there are hacks for things or that there are shortcuts or that if you just take this pill or you know do this thing or make this little tweak, it's going to change your life. And I think we've been sold on this idea, especially in the last couple of decades or even less than that, that that there's always going to be a shortcut that's available and the smartest people are the ones who find those shortcuts. Now, I think there are shortcuts for certain things, but a lot of the big things like losing weight, becoming healthier, leading a better work life, uh, having better relationships, there are no real shortcuts there. I mean, it's the same basic arithmetic, the same base, basic al set of algorithms that predict success as they've always been. And I think it's dangerous to think that there are always going to be these shortcuts that are going to lead us in a particular direction and that if, if only we find the right hack, all will be well. I think that's terrible advice. Fair. <laughs> and second last question, what was the most challenging aspect of writing a book? 
finishing. <laughs> just, just uh, you know, it's very easy to start writing a book. Anyone can start writing a book. Um, but it's when you get deep into, you know, 20,000 word territory when you, you're a quarter of the way through and you're like, you know, I feel like I've been writing this forever. Yeah. There's a lot of editing to go. And, uh, you, you know, you're not even close to the finish line, but there's this lull in the middle um, where it becomes very difficult to finish, I think, and that's where things slow down. And pushing through that is critical. And I think everyone who's almost everyone who's ever written a book has a moment when they're writing it where they say, this is the dumbest thing <laughs> I've ever read or written or thought of. And you've got to push through it because when you get through the other side, you'll realize that, you know, ideally that's not true. It may be true, but you hope it isn't. Mm. Uh, and there, there are going to be those moments. So you've got to recognize that they'll be there and, and uh, you've got to think about how you're going to get through them when they do come. And I think that for me was, was the hardest, those sort of darker moments when I was like, ah, I don't even know why I began this project, yeah. but I got through to the other side, so it worked out. Yeah, and here's me complaining about doing a 10,000-word dissertation last year, so that kind of put it <laughs> there in you go. bit of perspective. And <laughs> last but not least, and this is, if you think answers have been difficult, this always proves quite difficult to answer for the majority of the guests who come on, but describe yourself in three words. Ooh, that is tricky. Um, conscientious. Because I get stuff done, mm. I feel. Um, I, I'm assuming you want backstory or a little no, bit of well, a if you expanding. want, feel free. Oh, just, you just want me to throw the words out? Yep. Uh, yeah, so we'll go with conscientious, uh, loyal, and I'm going to throw in Australian because I feel like there's a, there are a number of elements that are just well captured there. Make of that what you will. Nice bit of nationality in there. No harm yeah. in that. Um, <laughs> well, that, that, that concludes the podcast, Adam. So I just want to thank you a lot for coming on. And I really enjoyed getting to hear some insights that are beyond the pages of the book and some of your future work as well. So I've really enjoyed discussing the topics we've discussed. So thanks again. And I wish you all the best. And with that third book, hopefully being released in the next year or two, whenever it's out, I um, hopefully you'll get around to reading that as well. Thanks very much, Rishi. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. No worries. Take care. You too.